passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. It's so good to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. And as we celebrate the resurrection uh, this morning, I want us to just consider a question. And that question is, is this. How does the historical reality of the resurrection, something that actually took place 2,000 years ago, how does that actually apply to my life today? How does it affect my life today? In other words, uh, if we're assuming the, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, and there's, there's great reason uh, to, to think that he did, why on earth does that matter? How does that affect me today? As I go about my daily life, how does the resurrection impact my thought life? How does the resurrection impact the way that I conduct myself at work? How does it impact my interactions with my family members? How does it impact my habits? How does it impact all of life? And as I've been considering that question, uh, really over the last several weeks and months preparing for Easter, I, I just keep coming back to Romans chapter 5 verse 10. Romans 5 verse 10 is this beloved verse for me in times of despair and in times of difficulty. And in this verse, Paul writes this to the church in Rome. He says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That verse is earth-shattering to me. As I read that verse, Paul, he first mentions the part that, that we're probably more familiar with. He points that out that reconciliation with God has been accomplished through the death of Jesus on the cross. And we're going to cover more of that in a moment. But notice what he says after that. In the second half of this verse, while we have been reconciled through the cross, then he says, much more shall we be saved by his life. In other words, what Paul is saying is he's claiming that the resurrection, Jesus' life, if it is possible, is even more essential to your salvation than the cross is. What a radical thought. If you're anything like me, it's somewhat surprising, maybe even slightly foreign as well. How is the life of Jesus essential for my salvation, for my life right now. That's what we're going to explore this morning. I want us this Easter to just simply unpack this, this one verse and look at what Paul is saying about this, this idea of much more, the much more of Jesus's resurrection. As we do so, I hope this, this one overarching truth is, is what we just latch onto, and it's this, that the risen and reigning Jesus is the surest grounds for hope. The risen and reigning Jesus is the surest grounds for hope. The fact that, that Jesus is risen, is alive, he's not dead, but he's, he's reigning right now, right now, is reigning in the heavens. That is the surest grounds of hope for your life. No matter what you are facing right now, it could be a season of plenty where you are tempted to, to say, do I really need God in my life? Or it could be a season of, of sorrow where, where just about everything in your life makes you just cry out, why God, why is this happening to me? Romans chapter 5 verse 10 tells us that we are to let Jesus and his life 
be our hope. Any place else that we look for hope, where we would look for peace, for the ability to make it through day after day, it's going to crumble. It's going to fail us. It's the life of Jesus that is the surest grounds for our hope. So let's go ahead and work our way through this verse. We're going to go through it phrase by phrase and see the weight of the impact that the life of Jesus can have on your life right now. The risen and reigning Jesus is the surest grounds for your hope. I want to read Romans 5 verse 10 again. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Romans chapter 5, this chapter, it opens up with this discussion on hope. And when the Bible talks about hope, it doesn't use it in the way that we oftentimes do. I, when I leave the house in the morning, I'll, I'll tell Crystal, my wife, among other things, I hope you have a good day. Many of you know that I'm an Iowa Hawkeye fan. At the beginning of the college basketball season, I had hoped that Iowa would make it to the Final Four, and we all saw how that worked out for me. When we talk about hope, we have a very different view of what hope actually is than what the Bible is talking about when it refers to hope. When the Bible talks about hope, it is referring to something that is deeper. It's far more important. In the Bible, hope is what gets you through the day, no matter what you may be facing. Romans 5 tells us that in the face of terrifying prospects, our hope is found in Jesus. In fact, Romans chapter 5 tells us that there are two terrifying prospects facing us each and every day. The first one is in the face of this broken relationship with God, verse 1, we have hope. And the second thing is that in the face of suffering and hardship in this life, verses 3 and 4, we can have hope because of what Jesus has done for us. I want to read just the first few verses of Romans chapter 5. It says this, Therefore, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is the lens that Paul says that we have to understand the entire cross and resurrection, what Jesus has done for us. We have hope. Because the war with God is over. This enmity between God and humanity is now over. And we also have hope in this present life because when we face suffering, it is not meaningless. It is not a sign that God is angry with us, that God has abandoned us. But instead, as Paul says in just a few verses later, that God is using these things to prepare us for glory. Romans 5 verses 3 and 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So astoundingly, the cross and the resurrection, they don't just tell us that our sufferings are temporary, but they also, maybe even surprisingly to us, it tells us that they are a part of God's plan, how God is at work in your life. Paul says something similar in his letter to the church in Corinth, that the hardships that we oftentimes long to avoid in our lives, actually those are a part of God's work in you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And this hope 
of a future glory, of a relationship with God in the age to come, it is so certain that it actually works backwards into time and affects our present day suffering. And so when Paul, in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, he starts with this word for, this is everything that he has in mind. This hope that we have in Jesus, this hope that the war with God is over, that our suffering is not meaningless in this life. He's saying, you know what, I'm going to give you an even greater explanation or even more proof of why this is the case. Verse 10. All that's summed up in the first word, for. And then Paul continues, he, he describes this weight of hope that is ours because of the risen Jesus. And he says, first, that we have to understand things in the right perspective. That's the, part, uh, the next part of verse 10. It reminds us of what things were like before Christ. For if while we were still enemies... This idea of being God's enemies, it's a sobering one. It's, it's probably a confusing one for some of us. Few of us, few of any people would actually say that we are openly hostile toward God. I look back at my life before I was a Christian, before I followed Jesus. I know that certainly wasn't the case. I didn't have a problem with the idea of God. I kind of actually liked the idea of him being around, of him helping me out if I showed that I was a pretty good person, that it seemed like I had my life together and I tried to do the right thing. Also at the same time, I would be the first one to admit I wasn't all that serious about the things of God. I had more important things in my life after all. And if I was being honest, this thought of, of God, on I, I thought we were on relatively good terms. I never in a million years would have said that if you were asking me how to describe my relationship with God, I would have said hostile, enmity, we're enemies with one another. I probably would have told you that we were amiable. They were like, kind of like those two cousins that see each other once a year, and they, they know that they're supposed to get along, and so they're friendly to one another, shallow, surface deep. We don't really have anything in common. Also, at the same time, I probably would have said, you know what? This is a transactional relationship. I'll do things for you, but I expect things back from you in return. Isn't that the very definition of hostility in a family relationship? If a son were to say that he wants nothing to do with his father unless he can get, out, get something out of it, or take the other side. If a, a father, he doesn't really care to be around his children, only spends time with his kids when he has to, when there's nothing better to do, only when he has to make sure that his image is up to par these types of relationships, when one person longs for a relationship and the other person says, you know what, just back off, give me some space, I don't really actually like you all that much, I only care about what you can do for me, that's the very definition of hostility, of estrangement, of brokenness in a relationship. And that's the description of the entirety of human history. It's the description of the entirety of your life before Jesus. It might not have been open hostility, it might have been subtle but ever since the garden, when Adam and Eve led all of creation in a rebellion against God, against their king, humanity has been opposed to God. In fact, enmity is the default state of our hearts toward God. Perhaps even more sobering, though, 
is that that enmity isn't only one way. It's not only directed in one way. Humanity fired the first shot. But the Bible also tells us that God considers humanity his enemies as well. Now, humanity may have let their enmity boil into outright hatred, and that's not true of God, but we were traitors to the throne. We tried to usurp his kingdom, and he considered us his enemies, the crown jewel of his creation, breaking his creation. And this enmity exists. It's never mingled with hatred. It's never done out of spite or or out of revenge. It's instead this brokenhearted recognition That there was a relationship here once, and now there's a massive gap between what God wanted it to be and where it actually is, and until something is done about that gap, humanity and God is estranged. There's no way to get around that. And that's why the next phrase that Paul gives us is so astounding that the foundation of the Christian faith is this. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's the astounding love of God, that he offers up his son for his enemies. This is the main focus of verses 6 through 8 in Romans chapter 5. Paul writes this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul's language here is is a little bit confusing for us. It's relatively straightforward of an argument, though. Paul is he's arguing from our own experience. He says, if you were asked what is the greatest act of love that you could do for someone else, nearly everyone would say it's probably laying down your life for another person. There's no other way for us to show love for other people more than laying down your life for someone else. Now, the list of people that you might lay your life down for, most people, it's going to be a pretty short list. It's going to be family members. It's going to be uh, maybe a couple close friends. It's not going to be a very large circle. Now, we laud the heroism of those who, who lay down their lives for innocent or for people that they do not know, that that's the exception rather than the rule. And even in those situations, we, we consider these people heroes because they are protecting the innocent. Or to use Paul's language, they are protecting good people. So what Paul is saying here, he's saying that the highest form of love that any of us could ever fathom is to lay down your life for a good person, someone that you love, that you care for, that you would substitute your life for them. Verse 6, that's what Paul is arguing. But then he also says that's not what God does. That's not what God did for us. If the highest form of love that you can fathom in your life is to lay your life down for someone that is innocent, to spare a good person, what does that say about God's love? Because God didn't lay his life down for good people or for innocent people. It was for the weak, verse 6. It was for the ungodly, verse 6. It was for the sinners, verse 8. It was for his enemies, verse 10. God's love is off the charts, 
We cannot begin to understand, to begin to fathom the greatest example of human love pales in comparison to the love that God shows us on the cross, reconciling those who were enemies to him through the death of his son. In Romans 5, Paul says this is the love of God. That God didn't wait for you to to get your act together before he started his rescue plan. He didn't wait for you to, to prove that you were serious about your faith this time before he offered his son to die in your place. God didn't wait for you to be open to the idea of a God who is in charge of the entire universe before he steps into human history. He didn't wait until you were strong. He didn't wait until you were showing promise. No, it says that while we were still weak, while we were sinners, while we were still his enemies, at the right time, Christ died for us. He rescued us. Reconciliation is a relationship term. When I say something or do something insensitive and hurt my wife, we need to reconcile our relationship. I can't just ignore it, pretend like nothing has happened. It's going to fester because something has has broken. Something is now off and it will continue to be off until things are made right. What is it that God did when he reconciles his enemies to him? What is the the work of the cross for us? Is it just like an armistice or a ceasefire? Is he he say, you know what, we're just going to go our separate ways now that I've taken care of this broken relationship. That's not what happens at the cross. A few chapters later in Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us what God has done for us. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So at the cross, we see we go from enemies to family members. And not just family members, but we are given the exact same status as the faithful son. Jesus' inheritance now becomes our inheritance. And that's a beautiful truth. And, and honestly, as I, as I think about that, uh, I can't even begin to, to fathom that. And yet, almost inexplicably, our verse goes even further. Like, Paul could have stopped right there. And we would have had plenty to celebrate. And then he gives us these two words, much more. Verse 10 again. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? I I can't even begin to to wrap my mind around those two words. It's, It's legitimately sensory overload. I have this limited capacity to, to grasp the wonder of the cross that God has made enemies into co-heirs with his son, through his son. And, and my capacity is strained to the breaking point at that. And now, Paul says, much more and begins to talk about the resurrection. What is Paul saying here? 
Remember, he's, he's talking about hope here. He's trying to remind us that our hope is unshakable, it is unbreakable, it is unmovable, specifically that that hope is for us in the midst of impossible circumstances, in the midst of impossible suffering. And Paul is saying that when we are faced with hardship, and we are faced with suffering, it is so easy for us, it's almost natural for us to begin to wonder why. It's easy for us to think that it is possible that this is our fault, that God is now turning his back on us, that he is upset with us, that he has abandoned us, that we did something to make him mad, and now he is trying to distance himself from us, or he's trying to punish us for what we have done wrong because there's no other reason for why we would be experiencing what we are experiencing. And in the context of Romans chapter 5, this verse, these two words, much more are meant to give us assurance and confidence of the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. And as Paul is he's fleshing out this description of this hope in verse 10, he, he explains why we can be so confident, why you can be confident in the hope that is yours in Christ if you are in Christ. In the first part of verse 10, Paul says you can have hope no matter what comes your way because even though you were God's enemy, God brought you into his family through the death of his son. And the second half of verse 10 is saying, but there's an even greater source of hope and confidence and surety. And that is that Jesus lives. In other words, the argument here of verse 10 could be put this way. If God has already done the hard thing, you were his enemy and he made you his family. If he's already done that, now that you are a part of his family, there's no doubt that he will do the easy thing that he will remain faithful to his children. There's two ways that we can look at these words much more. I want to look at both of them. The first is describing the love of God. If you doubt the love of God for you, the words much more are intentionally put there for people like you and, and honestly like me. I have these words. I wrote these words, this description of verse 10 in the margin of my Bible. I wrote this. If God has already done the hard thing, then I have no doubt that he will do the easy thing, that he will continue to care for me. If God has loved me at my worst, he won't stop loving me now. If God has saved me when I was his enemy, how much more now that I am his family? Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, I am sure he would not love me so long and then leave off loving me. If he intended to be tired of me, he would have been tired of me long before now. If he had not loved me with a love as deep as hell and as unutterable as the grave, if he had not given his whole heart to me, I am sure he would have turned from me long ago. He knew what I would be and he has had long time enough to consider it, but I am his choice and there is an end of it. And unworthy as I am, it is not mine to grumble if he is content with me. Those two words, much more, they, they silence the lies of the devil that tells us that, that God's love for us, it only goes so far. That God will love us up to a point, but after that point, he stops loving us. It reminds us that if God loved me at my worst, he's, he's not going to stop loving me now. Much more is about the love of God. 
but it's also about the power of God. This is another angle that Paul is writing about here. Paul tells us elsewhere as he's writing to the church in Corinth again in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, he, he talks about the cross as the, as the surest sign of God's weakness. It says this, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. So at the cross, Jesus shows us what weakness is. Jesus is weak on the cross, and I don't say that in this negative sense. Remember, Jesus chooses to remain on the cross. He shows the strength of his will to remain obedient to his Father, but the cross shows us his weakness. And in contrast to that weakness on the cross, we see the risen and reigning and living Jesus. He reigns in absolute power. And if you've ever doubted the power of God, the power to be at work in your life, to change your life, to save you from your sin, the power of God to give you victory over certain struggles against temptation, Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says this, if Jesus was powerful enough to make enemies into family members at his weakest moment, now it's his strength as he's exalted in the heavens, he can do anything as he is seated on the throne, how much more is his power now that he is risen, reigning, and alive? That's the promise of the resurrection. The resurrection is, is not just proof of God's victory over sin and over death. It is that. It's, it's not just the first fruits of our own resurrection, the sign that we also will experience resurrection someday. It is that. But when Paul says, we shall be saved by his life, we see that the resurrection has profound implications for how we live today. That it changes or should change the way that we live today. So how do I live as someone, not just in light of the, of the, the saving power of Jesus on the cross, but also the saving power of Jesus' resurrected life? Well, first, the resurrection means that we have fellowship with a risen king. We don't just have to rely on the, the memory of a dead king. We have fellowship with a risen, living king. One pastor writing hundreds of years ago put it this way, but you will never know the very juice and marrow of the gospel until you understand that Christ is not a mere historical figure who was once upon the earth hundreds of years ago, but a living, personal king who is even now accessible who can be spoken to, and who can speak to us in reply, and with whom we may live even now. If you get into personal contact with Jesus Christ, then you have learned how to live. Then is the dying Savior inexpressibly dear to you. But then also the living Christ is, if possible, even more dear to you. And you can live through him, with him, and for him, because he lives in you. It is absolutely life-altering to consider that Jesus, while reigning in the heavens now, is not just this bygone or this past former hero, but he has ascended into the heavens. He is alive right now. He lives right now. He will live forever in his resurrected body, and he delights in fellowship with his people. The resurrection points us to this fellowship that is ours in Jesus, not the memory of a dead king, of a dead hero, 
but a life with a risen and reigning one. There's another thing, uh, another implication of this, this phrase, much more saved by his life. It's a reminder that our victory over sin in Jesus can be ours now today. This is the message that John makes very clear in 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 5, that victory can be ours because of Jesus's victory. And if you find yourself in the midst of temptation, if you find yourself in the midst of, of weariness or doubt or, or a thousand other things, the resurrection can make all of the difference. Because if Jesus' weakness on the cross was sufficient to overcome the greatest show of strength from the enemy that we will ever see, and if Jesus was able to defeat that and make enemies into family in his weakness, how much more power does he have now that he is risen? How much more now will he intercede for you. In fact, that's what Hebrews chapter 4 tells us. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Why is it that we are supposed to draw near to the throne of grace? Well, it's because we have a living high priest. And what will we find when we come before him? Well, we're going to find mercy. Mercy for when we fail. And grace. Grace specifically for our time of need is what the author of Hebrews tells us. The living Jesus is our greatest weapon in our battle against sin and doubt and despair in our lives. Similarly, when we consider that we are much more saved by his life, it transforms our view on prayer. I don't know if you struggle with prayer, if you find it a constant battle and sometimes feel like you are a fraud or, or inept. When you pray, remember that Jesus lives. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us this. He always lives to make intercession for them. That's a powerful phrase, isn't it? It describes why the resurrection matters. It's because Jesus is alive and he is praying on your behalf. When you don't know what to pray, his prayers continue. When you pray the wrong things, he, he prays the right things. When you forget to pray, well, he's going to keep praying for you. The living Jesus is an astounding motivation for prayer because when I realize that he is living and praying for me, it transforms the way I pray from just this mundane exercise of just throwing words out into the void to actually realizing that I have an open line of communication with the active king of all creation. We are much more saved through his life. And we could cover a number of other things. I just want to focus on one more that gets at the heart of what Paul is saying here in this passage. When he says much more, he is offering us assurance. 
He's offering us assurance. That God has already done the hard work of saving you, and you can be sure that he is going to bring you to the end. He's not going to change his mind. He's not going to find out that he misjudged things, and there's a couple loose ends that you have to take care of before you are allowed to come into his family. That even when you fail, even when you sin, and make no mistake, if you are a Christian, you, even if you are a Christian, you will, when you lose your temper, and when you hold on to things like money, or your status, or your job, or your identity a little bit too tightly, when you waste your time, when you waste your opportunities, when you treat others poorly, when you think about yourself a little bit too much, and when you think of yourself a little too highly, Romans chapter 5 verse 10 will silence the enemy of your soul. Romans 5 verse 10 basically says this. If he brought me into his family when I was his enemy, through the death of his son, I could never doubt that now he will save me now that his son lives. At its core, the message of Easter, it's a message of hope. It's centered on a risen and reigning king. And we all need hope, don't we? We all need hope in this life. We need someone that's not going to let us down. We need someone who isn't going to change his mind. We know we need someone who won't make a mistake. We need the risen and reigning Jesus. The surest grounds for our hope. This hope that's for tomorrow, it transforms today. It's the start of an actual relationship, actual fellowship with Jesus right here, right now. It's not just the memory of, of a long dead hero. It's the key to our victory over sin. It's the motivating factor for prayer in this life when our prayers grow cold. And it's a word of assurance that closes the mouth of the accuser. If Jesus lives to make intercession for us, the serpent lives to accuse. And Romans 5 verse 10 closes his mouth. I'm reminded of an old hymn from Whitlock Gandhi. Well, may the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. The risen and reigning Jesus is the surest grounds for hope. He lives and he reigns forevermore. What a promise. What a glorious hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the incredible power of the resurrection, the incredible gift of what you have done for us. And God, we ask that you would help us to live life in light of what you have done for us, that you would strengthen our faith, that in moments where it is easy for us to to be tempted to doubt your love for us or doubt your power to save, that we would remind ourselves of the words much more. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. 
Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.